I don't know if any of you are old comic strip trivia buffs. I'm not. Uh, so I would have failed this question. But there was a comic strip that started in 1913 and ran through 1940. Uh, it was written by Arthur R. Pop Mamond. It's probably your favorite writer. Uh, it, ran in the, it ran in the New York world. And this comic strip focused on the issue of a family attempting to climb and navigate the social ladder in society. And as it focused on the McGinty, uh, not the McGinty family, that'd be the McGinty family over there. <laughs> So focused on the McGinnis family, uh, it focused on their desire and their, their attempt to, to see what was going on with their neighbors who never appeared in the entire history of the comic strip. And it was always focused on the, the McGinnis family, how, how are we in comparison to the neighbors who never appeared, but we know their names, their names were the Joneses. The comic strip was entitled, Keeping Up with the Joneses. That's the origin of the phrase that we hear in society, this idea that we've, we've got a certain stand, we've got to keep up. There's, there's this hunger for more. Maybe it's a higher job, or it's more pay, or it's the bigger house, or it's the, this hunger more and more and more and more and more. And, and what it has created in society is a society driven by hurry, hungry for more, even to the point of having infinitely more than one needs, it has led us to a place where the idea of contentment is very foreign to your average person, much less when we get into what does contentment look like when all of a sudden your circumstances fall out and you don't have a lot of access to a great crowd around you. These are circumstances that Paul, that Paul finds himself in. He's writing the book of Philippians, if we remember, from, uh, from house arrest in Rome. There he is in Rome, uh, at least two years into an imprisonment that started back in Jerusalem. He doesn't have freedom of movement. In order to be under house arrest, he's having to pay for his place. He's under arrest. So he has to find some means, like I can catch the hardship of that. I've got to pay for a place to be imprisoned, but I'm in prison, so there's no means to make money to pay for the place where I'm imprisoned, where I'm daily chained to a Roman guard. And whereas we've walked through all of the letter of Philippians, we see this constant attitude in Paul, not of defeat, not even of frustration, but of humility and joy writing to a group of believers that there is a deep affection for, a group of believers who are living in Philippi, the many Rome, who because they are citizens of heaven are having to live and move and breathe and walk in ways that are drawing them in conflict with the culture that they live in because in order to be a good citizen of heaven, there's going to be limits on how good a citizen of Rome one can be. And so we find ourselves here, as we've walked through chapter 4, looking at being an unwavering church, we find ourselves with Paul then speaking to them in the midst of hard circumstances where there's not always favorable people around. We find these words. Look with me, church family. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, 
that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content or sufficient in whatever circumstances I am in. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I am filled with the secret of being filled and of going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Here's what he says, church family. He finally actually gets to the whole reason for the letter. We spent all this time, and certainly these were things on his heart to write them, but what's gone on, as we know from chapter 2, the church in Philippi has heard of their beloved brother Paul, this, this man that they have engaged in ministry with, and they hear of his needs, and they have taken up a, a financial collection and offering a gift, and they have sent it with Epaphroditus to, to help take care of Paul, and Paul finally comes to the point of addressing this gift, and he says, he says, church in Philippi, when that gift arrived, I rejoiced greatly. I, was, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, and it's interesting, that word greatly, it's the only time that modifying word is used in the whole New Testament, meaning when all of a sudden Epaphroditus showed up at that door. And there was that knock, and the guard brought him in, and there he was with, with, new, with, with news from you, bringing your presence to me, bringing the gift of finances to me. I rejoiced through the roof in the Lord. I didn't rejoice through the roof in the gift. I, I rejoiced through the roof in the Lord. There's joy in the Lord, and it was exceeding. It was great. It was massive and look at what his joy was. Here's his joy. Look at verse 10. That now at last you have revived your concern for me. That word revived, this is an interesting little four verses, by the way, church family, because there's about six words that are only used here in the whole New Testament. It's one of the, one of the strangest combination of, of, of words, and one of these is revive. Revive is correct. It's, it's something coming back to life that seemed dormant, but literally it's a word that refers to, to the uh, botanical world. It's the idea of flowers and, and plants that have lain dormant for the winter, and now that spring is coming, they are sprouting anew and afresh. He said, I rejoice because your concern, your, your thoughts about me, your care for me, it had disappeared for a period of time. It was not there. It was dormant. It was not visible. And all of a sudden, when Epaphroditus shows up, it's clear, I'm still in your heart and mind. Now, if that sounds tough, and Paul realized that, so he says, now listen, I understand you were, you were concerned, meaning there was never a time when you were not actively concerned and, and worried for me and, and, and curious and wanting to help and wanting to partner, but the opportunity to step in and do it was lacking. Now, if we ask, well, what, what was the problem with the opportunity? Don't know, church family. He doesn't say. He doesn't say. Maybe the church wasn't able to, to take a collection until a certain point. Maybe they couldn't. I mean, this is a, this is a day and time where moves, news moves slowly. Maybe they were having trouble tracking down where Paul was. Maybe it, we don't know what the reason was, why there was a disconnect, but the disconnect wasn't because they didn't care. It was because the opportunity was there. And so he says, I, I, I rejoiced because all of a sudden I see your care afresh. And Paul's joy in the Lord is not that a gift was brought to him, but that 
His brothers and sisters in Christ are remembering him as we the saints ought to remember one another. But about the gift, and then he says, he says, not that, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. It's interesting. There's this concern in Paul that the church in Philippi understand his joy is not that they gave him money. Now, we know the church in Philippi was generous. Paul writes to the, the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and he references the churches in Macedonia, of which the church in Philippi was a part, which gave generously both to the saints undergoing famine in Jerusalem as well as to Paul. So this is a church that has supported Paul before, but, but Paul makes it clear, I, I, I'm not, my relationship with you, church in Philippi, is not based on what you can give or do for me. And it's not that your gift doesn't matter, but I want to be clear because there was this idea in the ancient world that relationships between people, the, the basemost relationship between people is the relationship that's built on what we'll call pragmatic utilitarianism, or let me put it more common, it's built on what can you do for me? And as long as you and I have a common, as long as there's pleasure I can derive from you, as long as we can, you can provide and, and, and meet that itch, there's a relationship. But when my pleasures change, when my needs change, the relationship changes. And the ancients looked at that as really the lowest form of relationship because really it's a fraudulent friendship. And Paul says, I want you to understand, my, my joy from you is, is not because of what you do for me, it's because of the mutual relationship we have in Christ. And so that when Epaphroditus shows up, my joy goes through the roof and he says, and the reason that my relationship with you is not tied to what you can do is because I have learned I have learned to be content the, the whole of my life. God has taught me in my relationship with him throughout my life, through circumstances, through highs, through lows, through joys, through sorrows. I have learned to be content. Content. Or another way to put it, I have learned to be self-sufficient. I have learned how to how to live in circumstances no matter what I have or what I lack, no matter who's present or who's not present. I have learned to walk and live and move and breathe independently. I have learned to be satisfied. I have learned to be content regardless of the circumstances. And this idea of contentment was rising in uh, philosophical circles at the time. A group of philosophers we would call the Stoics. And, and, to, and to these men and women, the, the idea of contentment was the, the essence of all virtues. But for them, the idea of contentment, the idea of contentment was this. It was that the person should be sufficient in themselves for all things and be able by the power of their own will to resist the force of changing circumstances. So for the Stoics, the idea of contentment was I, by the power of my own will, I, I detach myself from things, from people, from circumstances. I detach so that nothing can get at me. It's, it's this internal, I look within and by my own might, I make myself content. Now, Paul references contentment here, sufficiency, but he's about to go a vastly different direction. Look with me. 
He says, I've learned to be content. He says, I know how to get along with humble means, meaning quite literally, I know how to both uh, lower myself, I know how to impoverish myself, and I know how to face poverty. Not only that, but I also know how to live in prosperity. I know how to live when, 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 I, when there is prosperity, when the circumstances are favorable, when there are as much, and I know how to live without prosperity controlling me. He says, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Being filled is, is a word literally used to fatten up cows on the farm. I know how to have a feast and be nice and full. I also know how to feel the pain of starvation. I know how to have abundance. I also know how to feel the pain of having need, of lacking shelter, of lacking water, of lacking peers, of lacking a fresh pair of chacos to walk throughout the empire in. He knows, I know how to face lack. And understand when Paul says that here, those words used are not words that describe some kind of a detachment from the situation as if it's not hard. He says, I know how to hurt. I know how to have a lot. And when life is easy and comfortable, and I know how to, how to be content, how to be sufficient, how to be satisfied, I have learned the secret when it's painful and hard and challenging and trying and others would seek to escape. It says, I've learned the secret and here's the secret, church family, look with me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things. Here's the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now we've got to ask the question, what does Paul mean by all things? Okay, because it's really clear, Paul doesn't mean anything I put my mind to do, I can do it because Jesus strengthens me. Why do we know that's not true? Because if you climb up on the steeple today and you say, you know what, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, I'm going to walk on air. I got bad news for you. Jesus does not strengthen you to walk on air. If you sit there and say, I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and maybe you're a student and you're in some kind of sport and you go, tomorrow I'm going in the weight room. I'm going to win the starting job. I'm going to put up this amount of weight. I got news for you. Unless God appears to you in a vision physically and tells you to go in there and bench 300 pounds, you ain't benching 300 pounds tomorrow. But yet sometimes we've taken this verse and we've made it sound like I can literally do anything. No, all things here, there's a context. What does he mean by all things? He means anything that pertains to abounding or suffering. He means anything that pertains to the circumstances I've just described of having plenty or having lack. He said anything, whether the circumstances are favorable or not, family says, in these circumstances, in these things, I am able to do. The word there meaning I, I, am, I am sufficient to meet the task. I have the power, I am competent, I am able. In the context, it's the idea of regardless of what circumstance, throw any set of circumstance at me. And I have learned the secret of being content because I am able to walk competently and sufficiently in every circumstance because the one who is empowering within me. 
And it's a different word for power. The word Paul uses is, is this idea, I, I'm able to do it. I can meet the need. I, I'm sufficient. I'm competent. The word over here, though, goes beyond that and says, there is one who lives within me who is actively forging and imbuing and putting in and pouring out strength, power, might. And it's on the basis of the ones, one who is empowering me that I am competent to be able to meet any circumstance, regardless of possession or crowd, and be content. Unlike the Stoics, who's for contentment meant some kind of internal power of will, for Paul, he says, my ability to be content, to be self-sufficient, is because I am completely Christ-dependent. I am self-sufficient in these circumstances. I can abound. I can have none. I can be lonely. I can be, be uh, wrapped up in a wonderful community. I can be there or I cannot because I am completely and totally dependent upon God. My life is in Christ. Christ's will is what matters to me. The person of Christ, his work in my life is where my confidence is. My boast is in Christ. We have seen this all throughout Philippians, Christ is the center of Paul's life. The joy of Christ is, is what brings Paul fullness of life. And in, in Christ, he's found rest and peace and satisfaction. And so he writes the church in Philippi, desiring for them to understand, I, my affection for you, church, is not on the basis of what you can give. It's not on the basis of what I possess or what I lack but my infection for you is solely because there is, there is a mutual relationship we share in Christ. And the reason it's not based on what you can do for me is because there is a contentment that sits upon my life. Because regardless of circumstance, I find sufficiency in being dependent on Christ alone, the one who empowers me. And so, church family, what that means for you and I is very simple. If you and I are in this room today, and you and I have a real relationship with Jesus Christ, we have come to a personal saving faith relationship with Christ through a response of repentance and faith to the gospel message that Jesus lived, that he died on our behalf, that he rose, that he will save the one who cries out, ready for him to save if you and I, in fact, have that relationship with him, then here's what's true. Because there is one living within us, actively empowering us, we must learn and find sufficiency in his empowering alone, regardless of circumstance, possession, or who does or doesn't surround us. Because there is one who lives within. You see, Paul defines the source of contentment. The source is not within you and I. The source is the one who lives within you and I. The one who's actively at work empowering. The one who's engaged. Again, that word empowering there, it's, it's this participle. The one who, and it's in the present active, present tense active voice, which means this. Jesus Christ who lives within is never not working to pour out his power in your life and my life, his power that is sufficient for us to face whatever it is we're facing. There's never a time when God is not actively at work doing that and engaging in that way. What is Christ doing within our person? We know from Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things, all circumstances to work together for good. What good, his good. What is that good? 
that we be conformed into the image of Christ. That's a pretty major thing. How, how do we get there? That's a pretty massive deal because you and I don't start off very conformed to Christ. But listen, we already saw this in Philippians. Flip a page, Philippians chapter two. Look at verse 13. Having called us in verse 12 to take our salvation seriously, look at 13. For it is God who is actively working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Church family, here is the truth today. Every one of us in this room finds ourselves with varying levels of want, need, and have. Some of us have much. Some of us have little. Some of us have wants that are just wants. Some of us have needs that need to be filled. Some of us find ourselves in circumstances where we are loving every part of our life. Some of us find ourselves in circumstances that are challenging. Some of us find ourselves in changing circumstances. Some of us find ourselves lonely without community. Some of us find ourselves feeling like we have wonderful friends and incredible community. And here's the reality. Wherever you and I find ourselves, wherever we find ourselves today, there is one who is at work within us, willing to work, to bring about his will, to conform us into the image of Christ. And here's the reality of what that work's gonna mean. That work is gonna mean in our lives many times the same thing it meant in Paul's, where God allows Paul to face many trials. I mean, man, we, we don't have time to read it all, but go read sometimes 2 Corinthians 11, where Paul talks about his, his badges. He says, you think those people talking to you that they that they know what it's like to follow the Lord? He said, listen, listen to my, did you think they've labored? Listen to me. I've been in prison far more times, beaten, more beaten so many times I don't know the number, often in danger of death. Five times I received the 39 lashes. That's 39 whips with the cat of nine tails which scourged Christ. I was beaten with rods, I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I've, I've spent on the waves. On frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on sea, dangers among false brethren, and labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, hunger, thirst. Elsewhere he speaks of being left for dead, attacked by wild dogs. And he says, in all of this, Christ empowers, but here's what that passage builds up to in 2 Corinthians 12. In the midst of all of that, there is some weakness of Paul's, a thorn in the flesh given by Satan is what he calls it. And he pleads with God, God, take this thorn. And we don't know what the thorn was. Was it a person? Was it an infirmity? Was it, we don't know what the, the thorn was, but he pleads God. And I can just imagine, Paul, God, I would be so much more effective for you if this thorn was not present. And what is God's response? Paul, my grace that undeserved, unmerited favor of mine. My grace is sufficient, is enough for you. My power is made perfect, not in your strength, but in your weakness. And what's the change for Paul? He says, well, much more than I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so the power of Christ may dwell within me. I'm content with weakness, with insults, with distress, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, church family, Christ is at work in our lives empowering us to be able to meet the situation that we find ourselves in. But understand... That empowering frequently will lead us to places where we are weak. 
so that our contentment, our ability to be satisfied, is not dependent upon looking within at our strength, but our self-sufficiency in terms of contentment is because we are completely and totally dependent on Christ who is sufficient. The source of contentment is Christ. But there is a power of contentment that we see in, in Paul talking about here. There's a power of contentment. If, if the source of contentment is Christ, then the power of that in our lives is going to be found by us learning to find it in Christ. Did you catch that in the text? Did you see that? I have learned. I have learned the secret. Here's the reality. None of us come to faith in Christ and automatically know perfect contentment. No, God teaches it to us. God teaches us how to not depend on our own strength. God breaks us of those, those possessions and circumstances and people we worship that we think are necessary to be satisfied. He breaks us of those things so that we become more and more dependent on him alone. It's a learn, and that ought to be an encouraging word before we even go further, church family, because some of us are like me this week, and I, as I'm preparing the passage, I realize, oh my goodness, Lord, here's an area where I have not been content in life. Here's another area, Spirit, where you've just shown the flashlight where I've not been content in life. Oh my goodness. You know what the encouraging part of this is? The, the convicting part is, hey, there are areas where we're not content, and we've got to learn to find it in Christ, but here's the, here's the encouraging part. Paul says he learned too. He learned, but here's the great thing. Here's the emphasis. God's going to teach us, church family. Let's learn it and not just hear the lesson and refuse to ever move forward. Let's learn it. Well, how, how, how do we learn it? What are, what are we to do? How do we, what does it mean if, he's, if I know and understand the truth that Christ is working within me, that the source of contentment, the source of sufficiency is Christ? What do I do, pastor? Well, first... What does it look like to find self-sufficiency in him alone? Let me give you just a couple simple things that we see fleshed out in the rest of the New Testament. One, it's going to mean you and I take Christ at his word. And by faith, we appropriate that truth into our lives. Let me ask you a question. When last time you faced unfavorable circumstances, did you or, or I'll just ask me, did the last time I faced challenge, faced Situation where you would go, oh Lord, if we could just change this now. Did I grow discouraged and frustrated and look at my own power, or did I go, you know what, Christ, here's what I know. This is hard. I don't necessarily enjoy it. I don't have to like it, but I trust that you are sufficient. Do we believe his word? Paul says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ and the life that I, and I no longer live. It's Christ who lives within me. But the life that I live in the flesh, because I'm still technically really alive in my body, I'm not just zoned out somewhere and it's, and it's Christ operating my body. But the life that I live in my flesh, what does it mean that I have died and Christ lives within me? It means the life that I live in flesh, he says, I live by faith. Confident assurance Trusting what is said, which is true, though unseen. How do we, how do we begin to appropriate? How do we begin to, to find sufficiency in Christ? You've got to believe his word. Paul, Jesus tells us in John 15, part of believing his word is that we seek to abide in Christ. 
that we seek to abide in Christ, that we seek to walk moment by moment, day by day, in faith, abiding in him. The power, the power for the vines, the vine and the branches, the power is not found in the fruit off the vine, it's found in the fruit abiding in the vine. We seek to abide. This is not just done in a one-time, quiet time, checked off in the morning. It's, it's a way of living that's radically different and only possible in Christ. We abide in Christ. We seek the things above. Paul says in Colossians, we, we seek the things above, setting our minds on the things above, seeking the things above. There is a place, we've seen it all throughout Philippians. We looked at it last week. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure, whatever is admirable, are we actively taking our thoughts to those things? Are we, are we abiding and are we seeking the things above? How are we going to find sufficiency in Christ? Are we humbly submitting to the will of Christ? See, I, there's a connection between believing his word, abiding in him, and humbly submitting. Isn't it interesting, Paul? Paul not once in this letter has said, please pray for me to get out. Paul not once has said, here's my plan to get away from this. Now, Paul in this letter says, hey, look, I think I'm likely to be released. It's what I think is going to happen, and here's what I'm planning. Here's hopes. Here's, here's the holy ambition in my heart, the holy discontent in my heart of things that God has laid on my heart to go and to do. But you don't see an escapism in Paul. Instead, you see a contentedness where he is rejoicing in chains. He's rejoicing that the gospel is spreading, though his chains. He's rejoicing that people are growing in Christ, even though he's in the midst of chains. You see a joy, an enduring joy that flows from sufficiency, which is in Christ, because he is humbly submitted to God's will in his life. And here's the reality, true contentment, church family, true contentment does not mean, even when we humbly submit to the will of Christ, it doesn't mean that we no longer have desires. It's the classic example to the single person who's longing to be married. Well, once you just get content, then God will bring. Once you just get to the point where you no longer have the longing to get married, then God will bring, well, if you don't have the, longer, have the longing to get married, please don't. Being content with your singleness doesn't mean you no longer have the desire to be married. It means in the midst of your singleness, rather than trying to constantly escape and trying to run to different doors, I find sufficiency and strength and joy in Christ. And I submit to whatever God's will is to use that season of singleness in my life. It doesn't mean there's, there's devoid of desire. It doesn't mean that we don't have any kind of holy ambition. And I say holy ambition because we can be driven by fleshly ambition. More, 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 more. The opposite of contentment. But there ought to be holy ambition. To be content doesn't mean an excuse to just be lazy. Well, that's really great, Pastor, that there's opportunities to serve and be on mission. But, uh, you know, I just, I'm content in my circumstances sitting on the couch doing nothing. That's not what Paul's talking about here. There ought to be holy desire, holy ambition, holy discontent for ministry. It doesn't mean that when we face suffering or hardship, when we go without, when jobs fall through, when there's loneliness, when friends are not around us, it doesn't mean that there is somehow just a numbness and it doesn't impact us. Paul says, I felt the pain of hunger. 
I felt the pain of the, the lashes of the whip. I've felt the sting of loneliness. I've had to fight tirelessly on the waves. Contentment doesn't mean a detachment from these things, but it is a strength to, in the midst of experiencing the hardship and sorrow of those things, to be able to endure joyfully. Because the one who is actively working in my life within to empower is there. This is what it looks like, the power of contentment in our lives. And here's the last little part. Here's what's really fascinating to me. As Paul's overall, when you really walk through the text, Paul's overall concern isn't to unpack everything that there is about contentment in Christ. He's actually drawing a clear issue to the transformation contentment brings in our lives. You see, when we all of a sudden, in, in complete Christ dependence, find sufficiency and power to meet any circumstance that we are placed in in Christ. It certainly changes our relationship with things, transforms our relationship with possessions. No longer will our lives be consumed by chasing that, that next job. No longer will our lives be consumed by pushing our kid to chase that next thing and this thing and this thing and this thing until we have left them not a single ounce of time to grow an affection for Christ and his church. And then when they don't go to church, when they grow up and we go, oh my goodness, what happened? Well, we taught them that every extracurricular activity in junior and high school was more important than Christ and his body. Changes our relationship with that bigger house, that better vacation, that better car, although maybe now everyone's regretting having that bigger car. What is that status I can grab for? It changes our relationship with possessions, not just with possessions, but it transforms our relationship with circumstances. Because I can be content because there is a sufficiency in Christ, because Christ is at work strengthening me, it means I can resist the urge to tirelessly look to escape my circumstance. Now, what, what do I mean by that? I mean, when, when hardship comes, are we often looking, man, once we just get to the next thing, once we just get past to the next phase, once we move past this season, oh, if only this could change, are we constantly looking to the next for change or in the midst of where we find ourselves, are we saying, Lord, don't let me miss how your power might be brought through my life in this? Let me give you a real great personal example because many of you have asked. Bethany and I have an option on a practical daily level to go, goodness, when we can just get to the stage where Jesse will sleep eight hours. <laughs> right? And we laugh because everybody gets it. But it's hard to operate on four hours of sleep every night for a prolonged period of years. If only we can get to the next part, if only we could, oh Lord, if we could just get her schedule set so then Bethany would have better rest and then I'd be able to do this, oh my goodness, Lord, if that would happen and in that, then I would just be able to eat even better in my sermon prep and be more efficient in this response to this and how easy it is to get focused on how hard it is and Lord, if you can just take us to the next thing then to say, Lord, it is hard. You do give us the, reason, the right to ask and say, Lord, we would love for you to help her sleep for eight hours. But Lord, do not let us miss being made weak and in our weakness learning even greater dependence upon you 
so that if I get up here on a Sunday morning to preach, I'm not preaching in my power and strength, but I am doing it desperately in full dependence on you. And church family, I don't know what that circumstance and where that plays in, but it tra- in your life, but it, it transforms our relationship with circumstance. It transforms when God calls us to do something. Moses, l- deliver my people. I can't, Lord, can't do it. And God said, I didn't ask you to do it. I said, I was going to do it through you. Joshua, go in, march around the city, lead the people in. You can imagine Joshua, God, we can't, I can't conquer Jericho. I don't have that training. I don't have that background. And God said, I didn't ask you to go conquer Jericho. I said, walk around the wall. I'm going to deal with it through you. Jeremiah, I've called you to never see a single person respond to your preaching for your whole life. They're all going to hate you. They're going to say ugly things about you. You will be the most despised person in the land, starting as a young youth. But Lord, I'm just a youth. I can't. Don't say you're a youth. I will put the words in your mouth. I will give you the strength to stand, and you will go where you think you can't go because I will empower through you. It's interesting. Paul hadn't caught this before, but when he gets the vision in Acts 16... He's trying to push over east into Asia, and he gets the vision in Acts 16, and, and God, God shows him a man from Macedonia who says, come. And so this shifts the whole focus of Paul's mission, and they go to Macedonia, and what's the first place they come to? Philippi, where they meet a lady by the stream named Lydia who comes to faith in Christ, she and her whole household. A small church starts. People begin to coming to faith in Christ. The Philippian authorities get really mad. They throw Paul and Silas in prison. And then Paul goes on to the rest of the second missionary journey. And there in Acts 18, it makes this statement as he's coming back that he cut his hair because he'd been keeping a vow. It's very likely that that vow was the vow of a Nazarite. And, and, and a man would enter into a Nazarite vow for the specific purpose of a period of complete and total dependence on the Lord reflected through the carrying out of that vow. So this is somewhat speculative, but it stood out to me this week that very possibly when Paul got that vision to go into Macedonia, it was so outside of his comfort zone and what he thought he should be going and doing that he underwent a Nazarite vow to say, Lord, I can't do it, but I will depend upon you alone because I can do all you call me to do through you who strengthens me. Which is why it doesn't just transform relationship with circumstance, but with each other. Paul says, Philippi, I don't have to I don't love you because of what you can do for me. I love you because we're in Christ. Because I am content. Because my relationship with you is not about what you can do for me. It's about God's glory. Church family, contentment changes everything. But we've got to be clear that contentment is not found with detaching ourselves by our own effort. It's found with pressing hard into Christ, the source of our contentment, the power of contentment played out in our life as we rest by faith in Christ, as we trust his word, as we abide in him, transforming all the relationships we have in life with people, with things, with circumstances.
Perhaps the greatest danger to many of us walking with God is the unrelenting drive to keep up with the Joneses, to have more, to escape circumstances, not realizing that in all of that way, it debases our relationship to people, to places, to times, to things. But oh, what a witness to the world, church family, when regardless of high or low, they see a steady, rock-solid believer who walks with an enduring joy, not numb to the pain, who can weep freely, who can laugh freely, because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of who you are and what you do. God, I know for sure that, that everyone in this room is either facing, has certainly faced, or will be facing times of hardship, times that we would love to escape. And Father, I don't think this passage today doesn't mean that we can't, in, in some of those things, there are situations you would have us in obedience leave. Part of the hardship is because we shouldn't be there. But Lord, as we follow you, you are going to lead us into places that are tough. And may we not be a people who, when we realize that we are weak for what it is, grow discouraged. But oh Lord, may we quickly realize that we are weak for what it is, but you love, you love to call us to what we are not sufficient for so that we will truly understand your grace is sufficient, your powers perfected in our weakness. Lord, may we boast in you all the more gladly because we are weak, because times are tough. And may we understand and experience what it means that we are able to do all things. We are able to face all circumstances because you strengthen us. And that power you strengthen us with, that's the power of your resurrection. So Holy Spirit, as you move now, as you've been moving, may we worship and may we respond in obedience. It is in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.